0: Well, good morning, 9 a.m. It's great to be with you as we begin our new sermon series in the book of Luke. Um, Again, I'm James, and it'd be great if you could keep your Bibles open to the passage, uh, both to help you to follow along as we go through it, uh, but also so you can make sure that I'm not going rogue. Well, how do you decide what to believe? Nowadays, we're asked to believe a lot of things. We're constantly being bombarded with new information uh, in various ways. And some of it is true, a lot of it's not. And if we don't want to blindly believe everything we're told, we need to decide which things to believe. Uh, Here's an example of a piece of information, a fun fact that a friend of mine found on Instagram. Uh, It says, did you know, research has shown that people who don't eat meat are at higher risk of developing hair loss. Uh, Now, I don't know why he decided to send that to me. Um, (laughs) But once he did, I was faced with the question, should I believe it? Uh, Well, even putting aside the blatant spelling mistakes and all the negative comments on the post, uh, social media is just not a rel- reliable way to learn medical information. So going off this, I, can, I can't reasonably uh, know that this did you know is something I should know. Uh, without further research, it probably wouldn't be a good idea to believe it. Now, this is a silly scenario, but as a general rule, when we want to know if we should believe something, we ask the same question. Can I know this for sure? And as we come to the book of Luke, we find someone who has that same question, Uh, not about some fun fact he found on Facebook, uh, but about something more important, something that actually matters, uh, whether or not he believes it. He's asking the question about Jesus. Can I know for sure? Let's read the first four verses of Luke. These first four verses are an introduction to the book as a whole, and Luke tells us here why he's written it. Luke lived nearly 2,000 years ago, and he's written to a man named Theophilus, and apparently Theophilus has heard about Jesus. It's likely he's been taught that Jesus died and rose again, and if Theophilus believes in him, he can have eternal life. But it seems he isn't completely on board yet. And so Luke is writing this account to answer Theophilus' question. Can I know these things for sure? So Luke takes on the role of an investigative journalist. At Verse 3, he's carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Uh, This means he's also gone directly to the best possible sources, to the eyewitnesses who saw Jesus for themselves. And that's not easy to do. Uh, Luke didn't have the luxuries of the internet like we do. He had to physically travel to different cities if he wanted to do research. But the results speak for themselves. Luke's gospel is a highly detailed, orderly account. Uh, But what are these things about Jesus that Luke is uh, recounting? Luke's not just concerned with the bare-bone facts of Jesus' life. No, verse 1 says that This is an account, just like others that have been written, of the things that had been fulfilled among them. Fulfilled is an important word. Uh, This language of fulfillment is Luke's way of saying that the things Jesus did uh, were promised beforehand. Specifically, the things that God had promised throughout history, all throughout the Old Testament. Promises about sin and salvation of the Messiah who will come and save his people forever. All of these have come true. They have been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. This book, this gospel, is the result of Luke's hard work. This book is an orderly account of how Jesus fulfills God's salvation plan as reported by the eyewitnesses themselves. So to Theophilus' question, Luke answers with a resounding yes. Theophilus can know with certainty. And the fact that Luke has gone to all this effort should tell us something. Luke thinks that this historical account about Jesus is not just true, but it's so important that Theophilus needs to know it's true and to believe it. And if it's important for Theophilus, uh, it will also be important for us who want to know with certainty about Jesus. So with that in mind, as we begin the book of Luke, let's ask God for his help in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word to us in the book of Luke. Please help us to understand it so that we may see Jesus more clearly and to have certainty about the things that we have been taught. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So the narrative of Luke's Gospel begins with the story of Christmas. Uh, Conveniently, you'll notice it's July now. So apparently, we're celebrating Christmas in July this year at St. Matthew's. Uh, And I won't lie to you, in the past, I've been rather skeptical about Christmas in July. Uh, After all, we celebrate Christmas every year. In December, we already have Christmas. Do we really need a second Christmas? A few years ago, though, uh, I got invited to my first Christmas in July party, and I begrudgingly went. And even though we were just doing the same things that we always do at Christmas normally, this time, something clicked. Of course, a lot of our Christmas traditions we've inherited from those in the Northern Hemisphere, where Christmas is in winter. So actually, getting to experience Christmas in winter, suddenly, things make a little bit more sense. Uh, Hearty Christmas food makes more sense when it's cold outside. Christmas lights make more sense when it's dark by 5pm. And ugly Christmas sweaters... Actually, no, I still don't really get those, but at least they're warm. Uh, But in general, as familiar as I was with all these things, Christmas made more sense when placed in the proper context. Uh, it's true for Christmas traditions, and it's just as true for the Christmas story. So, as we come to a passage that uh, some of us will be very familiar with, that we've read every year at Christmas time, there's a very real danger that we take it for granted. Uh, but this story isn't just a nice, happy story of festive joy. No, uh, it's not something that we hold alongside Santa Claus. No, Luke has a story to tell us that's crucial to understanding the Jesus of history. So let's take another look at the story of Christmas. Let's look again at Jesus. Uh, Well, Luke begins the story in verse 5 with the phrase, in the days of King Herod. Uh, This actually tells us a lot about the historical context, which Luke has carefully researched. Herod isn't an Israelite king. He's a foreigner, a puppet king installed by the Roman Empire who are oppressing Israel. And in a sense, this has been Israel's situation for hundreds of years. They've been under the rule of different foreign nations for centuries. Uh, But God, in his kindness, had promised them that he would rescue them, that he would send them a king, the Messiah who would save them, and that he, God himself, would come to them. But now they're still waiting for him to rescue them. There are people who need help. And it's at this point that uh, Luke introduces us to Zechariah, a man about to receive an announcement. In a lot of ways, Zechariah's your average guy. Uh, He's from a priestly family. And as a priest, he would represent the people before God. It's an important role, but He was one of many thousands of priests in Israel at this time. There's not too much noteworthy about him, except for two things that Luke tells us about him and his wife Elizabeth. Firstly, they're righteous before God. Verse six. uh, Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. This doesn't mean they've never done anything wrong ever but they're serious about following God. They're of exceptional character. And yet, secondly, they have no children. Verse 7, they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. It's tragic, wanting to have kids but not being able to. And so for Zechariah and Elizabeth, who have trusted God and followed him all their lives, as Zechariah served God in the temple, uh, and they prayed continually for a child, you can imagine the deep sadness and even confusion that must have followed. Why was God withholding this blessing from them? Perhaps the community around them even thought they were being punished by God for some sin. As Elizabeth expresses later in the passage, their childless state was a disgrace among the people. But life must go on, and so Zechariah continues to do his priestly work. Uh, Let's read from verse 8. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time uh, for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Suddenly, an angel, a messenger from God, appears. And besides scaring the heebie-jeebies out of Zechariah, he's come with an announcement. And what an announcement it is. God has heard his prayers. God was going to give them a miracle son. And if the message ended there, well, that'd be really nice for Zechariah, you know, good for him. But the angel continues. Uh, John isn't going to be just any child. He's going to be empowered by God, through the Holy Spirit, to do God's work. And what is that work? John is going to prepare Israel for the coming of the Lord himself. Ultimately, John's birth isn't really about John at all, uh, but that finally God is going to restore his people. It's way bigger than Zechariah was hoping for. Uh, Now, this isn't just an arbitrary promise that uh, the angel is making up on the spot. Uh, The angel is alluding back to an Old Testament prophecy. There are actually many Old Testament references throughout this passage, but we only have time to cover a couple. Uh, So here's this one, uh, Malachi chapter 4. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, I see that similar language, and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. God promised this 400 years before the angel came to Zechariah. In fact, these are the last verses of the book of Malachi, and Malachi is the last book of our Old Testament. So from that time till now, there's been no word from God to Israel. This isn't just a personal answer to Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayers. This is the answer to all of Israel's prayers. John is going to be the Elijah figure, preparing for the great day of the Lord, that day when God arrives to bring justice, just as was promised so long ago. Everything that the Old Testament promised, Zechariah is standing on the cusp of their fulfillment. It's happening in his lifetime. As the angel later says, this is good news. This is gospel. So not only is he getting a son, salvation is coming to Israel. Zechariah must be stoked, right? Well, we see Zechariah's response in verse 18. How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years bit of advice for the husbands here, don't call your wives that. <laughs> but Zechariah doesn't believe the angel. He knows how biology works. He knows that he and his wife can't naturally have kids, not at the age they are now. Maybe, he think, maybe it's because he thinks it sounds too good to be true, but he treats the angel like he's a scam caller. And so he asks the angel for a sign. How can I be sure of this? He doesn't believe. In return, the angel says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. So Zechariah won't be able to speak until the baby is born. Which, in a way, is giving him what he wants. He asked for a sign, and now he's got one, and he probably regrets it. All the same, he is being punished. Gabriel says this is happening because he did not believe. And that might sound kind of harsh, but we need to understand exactly what's going on here. Zechariah, yes, he's being punished because he didn't believe Gabriel's words, but they're not just Gabriel's words. Gabriel came from where? From the presence of god and he was sent by god to say these things so gabriel's words carry god's authority his failure to believe the angel's words is a failure to believe god's words and this is all despite his heritage his righteousness his priestly status and everything he's learned about god in the old testament he's not an ignorant man when God says that Israel's response at restoration is about to happen Zechariah basically responds with Sure God, but I'm not sure you can keep your word. I'm going to need proof. Zechariah responds to God's word with unbelief and as a result he has his own words taken away for a time. Now, the name John means God has been gracious. And despite Zechariah's unbelief, God is gracious to him, and it's not long before Elizabeth conceives, and her disgrace is taken away. John is on his way, which means God won't be far behind. So when is he going to arrive? Well, Gabriel still has one more announcement to make. It technically alliterates, so it's, you know I did put effort into that point. Uh, we're the first... <laughs> Where the first announcement was made in the glory of the temple, some months later, Gabriel ascends to a backwater town middle of nowhere, the town of Nazareth, the kind of place people talk about saying, "Can anything good come from there?" And he sent to a young woman named Mary. In verse 27, we're told she's a virgin, she's not married, however, she is engaged to a man named Joseph of the royal line of David. But as it currently stands, she's a woman of very low social status. However, God decides to send her a message anyway. In verse 28, we read, The angel comes to Mary and says, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. It's another birth announcement. And just like John, Jesus is going to be a miracle child conceived by a virgin. But that's not the only thing about Jesus that's going to be extraordinary. Uh, Even greater than John, Jesus will be great because he is God's own son, coming to reign as king. Jesus is truly and properly the Lord who is to come after John. Now, there's another Old Testament reference here I want to uh, look back to. This time it's 2 Samuel 7. A long time ago, God promised King David, whom he had chosen as king to rule over Israel, God had promised him this. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Mary is being promised here that her son will be God's promised king from David's line. He's the one Israel has been waiting for, who will reign forever over God's people and even the whole world, establishing peace and justice. He will fulfill the promises of 2 Samuel 7. Now, I can't imagine what it would have been like to be Mary in this situation, the The angel's message is incredible. It's almost too wonderful. If Zechariah was given grace, Mary's been given grace on steroids. But how does Mary respond to God's word? For a second, it looks like Mary's going to respond the same way that Zechariah did, but her response is different. Verse 34. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? She's not looking for proof, like Zechariah, instead Mary asks the how question, because she knows how biology works. She knows that she can't have kids yet. And so the angel explains, God will make it happen. Verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Gabriel doesn't point to what Mary will do. He instead points to God's work, to God's grace in accomplishing his saving works and fulfilling his promises. Jesus will be conceived by God's power Through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the crucial words are here in verse 37 For no word from God will ever fail. This is what Zechariah had forgotten God's words will be fulfilled. That's something that we can know with certainty. Mary understands this and she responds beautifully in verse 38 I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. (laughs) Mary does indeed believe God. And with that, the angel departs. So we just read about two announcements. Uh, And taking a step back, one thing has been made very clear. Luke wants us to know that God's word won't fail ever. And if that was true then, 2,000 years ago, then Luke would want us to know that. Even now, God's word is still trustworthy and true. Uh, We might not have had an angel appear to us today. I don't quite qualify as that. Uh, But what we do have is Luke's orderly account, and indeed all of Scripture, written so that we might know the certainty of these things, the things that God has fulfilled and the great promises that he has made, So as we have read now about Jesus, God's own son, born to rescue and to rule, we have to ask ourselves this question, do I believe? There's a world of difference between Zechariah, who did not trust God's word, and Mary who did. After all, remember who Zechariah was. He was a priest who served in God's very temple. And Luke calls him righteous. And yet, even with all these things, when God spoke, he did not believe. My brothers and sisters, and that includes you kids, please don't ever think that the things we are or the things we do, maybe that our family is Christian or that we go to church or even that we're serving in ministry, don't for a second think they are the same thing as belief. They won't make you right with God. Meanwhile, Mary had next to none of those things. All she had was trust in God's word, and she was considered blessed. That's all she needed to do, and that's all that we need to do. And so as we work through this gospel over the next three months, this is the question that Luke will continue to call us to ask ourselves. So again, I'll ask. Do you believe? One of the joys I've had looking and uh, preparing this passage has been the great reminder of how privileged we are to be living this side of Jesus' birth, to be able to see all God's promises and plans since the creation of the world fulfilled in him. So if you're here and you're a Christian, then praise God. It might be a familiar story, But never take for granted how deeply God has loved us in Jesus. Keep holding on to him and keep rejoicing in the salvation that Jesus has won for you. And if you're not a Christian, maybe you're just investigating Jesus, then I'm glad you're here. My hope is that you'll keep investigating, because if Luke's carefully researched account is right, it is reliable, and that eternal life is available, To you through Jesus there's only really one thing to do to believe if you have any questions or just want to chat feel free uh, to grab me or anyone else you've seen up the front today but uh, how about I close in prayer for now father God we thank you for your unfailing word that all your promises are yes and amen in Jesus. Please continue to use your word to do your work of saving your people and building your church. And please strengthen our conviction of the truth of your word, so that we might hold on to your son, trusting in him to your glory, amen.